Hello again and welcome to another episode of the Ominous Origins Podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this episode is still brought to you by the wonderful people over at MorbidlyBeautiful.com. Go check out Morbidly Beautiful for all your horror pop culture needs. From interviews, reviews, top 10 lists, podcasts, whatever you want, they have it. Go check it out. Now, I do apologize for taking so much time off. I don't know why it happened. It was the holidays. Things got out of control. You know, it happens. Life gets in the way sometimes, and we just can't always do what we want to do. But with that said, I do come back with some very interesting news. In case you haven't noticed by now, Spotify has added a little feature to each and every podcast that you come across. You can now rate it on Spotify. You can't review it just yet. I don't know if that's going to be added in the future, but for now, you can leave a little five-star rating. So far, I think 10 people have done it. So uh, get to it if you haven't yet. That's all. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. And speaking of getting started, wow, we have an interesting one for you this week. This is another true crime one, and it's very unique. It's about a guy named Brian Schaefer, and you might remember that name if you're old enough, because he randomly disappeared on a unassuming March night in 2006 after a night out with his friends. Yep, just poof, vanished off the face of the planet, and it still remains a mystery to this day. So we're going to talk about that, see what happened to Brian Schaefer, coming up right now. Ominous. Ominous. It is an adjective. Sounds like someone breathing. Ominous. Before we get into the... Well, disappearance itself. Let's go into a little bit of a background on who he was. Now, Brian Schaefer grew up in Pickerton, Ohio, a suburb outside of Columbus. He's the eldest of two sons to Randy and Renee Schaefer. He graduated from the local high school in 1997 and went to Ohio State University, OSU, for his undergraduate work. Six years later, he graduated with a degree in microbiology. Following that brainiac work... Schaefer began studies at the OSU College of Medicine in 2004. During his second year there in March of 2006, his mother died of a disease. Schaefer's friends say that although he appeared to be handling it well, her death was ultimately hard for him. And naturally so. Now, During this time in medical school, Schaefer had become romantically involved with another medical student, Alexis Wagoner. She, along with their families and friends, believed that Brian would probably be proposing to her later that year in 2006. Most likely on a trip to Miami, the couple had planned for spring break at the beginning of April. Tropical locations such as Miami were attracted to Schaefer. He liked the relaxed lifestyle and, you know, the sun and the heat and the warmth. He told his friends that despite his decision to pursue a medical career, his real ambition was to start a band playing music in the vein of Jimmy Buffett. Now, don't we all have that same dream, that same fantasy? Don't we all want to live like Jimmy Buffett? Maybe not Jimmy Buffett, but you know what I mean. Now, here's where things get fishy. It was on March 31st, a Friday, and the classes at OSU had just ended for spring break. Schaefer and his father, Randy, celebrated the occasion by going out to a steak dinner earlier that evening. Schaefer's father noted that he seemed exhausted from having pulled all-nighters earlier in the week and cramming for some very important exams, something I think anybody who's ever been in college or university and takes their studies somewhat seriously has done. I never did that. And look where I am now in life. Great, great, great 34-year-old right here. Doing a podcast on a Tuesday afternoon. (laughs) Now, he didn't think Schaefer would go out with a friend, William Clint Florence, later that night as he planned to, but he did not express his reservations to his son. In other words, he seemed like he needed some R&R 
rather than some booze and boobs, maybe? I don't know, whatever they had planned later that night. Now, around 9 p.m., Schaefer met Florence at the Ugly Tuna Saluna. That's a great name for a bar in the South Campus Gateway Complex on High Street in Columbus. An hour later, Schaefer called Wagner, who had returned to her home in Toledo to visit with her family before she and Schaefer were set to depart to Miami. Schaefer and Florence went bar hopping, visiting several other drinking establishments and working their way down the arena district. At each stop, both of the boys would have a shot of hard liquor, at least according to Florence. After midnight, Schaefer and Florence met Meredith Reed, a friend of Florence in the short north. Reed gave them a ride back to the Ugly Tuna Saluna, where they never should have left, and joined them for one last round. While the three were there, Schaefer separated from his companions. Something you never do if you've ever seen a horror movie. Florence and Reed, which sounds like a band name in and of itself, attempted to find Schaefer, repeatedly calling him. They left with the other patrons when the bar closed at 2am, waiting outside for Schaefer, but he never showed up. He wasn't among the departing crowd, and they assumed he'd gone back to his apartment without letting them know. Wagner and Schaefer's father both tried calling him later that weekend, but he didn't answer. On Monday morning, he missed the flight to Miami where he and Wagner were supposed to go. It was after that he was reported missing to the Columbus police. Now you may be asking, how does somebody just go missing from a bar on a busy Friday night? Well, we're gonna get there, but there's a bit of an investigation to go through first. Naturally, police began their search for Schaefer at the Ugly Tuna Saluna, the bar where the boy had last been seen. Since the area around South Campus Gateway was somewhat blighted with a high crime rate, the bar had installed security cameras, which is very smart of them. They reviewed the footage, which showed Schaefer, Florence, and Reed going up an escalator to the bar's main entrance around 1.15 a.m. Schaefer was seen outside of the bar around 1.55 a.m., talking briefly with two young women and saying goodbye. He then moved off-camera in the direction of the bar, apparently to re-enter. The camera didn't record him leaving shortly afterwards when the ugly Saluna Tuna closed. It should never close. That was the last time he was seen. It was possible investigators realized that Schaefer could have changed his clothes in the bar or put on a hat and kept his head down, which would have hidden his face from the camera. The cameras might have also missed Schaefer. One panned across the area constantly, and the other one was operated manually. He might have also left the building by another route. However, the building's only other exit, a service door not generally used by the public, opened at the time onto a construction site that officers believed would have been difficult to walk through while sober, much less intoxicated, as Schaefer likely was at the time. Since Columbus had the most security cameras of any city in Ohio, more than Cleveland and Cincinnati and Toledo combined, officers next looked to the footage from other bars to see if their cameras might have picked something up. However, footage from these cameras at three other nearby bars showed no trace of him. The search began to fan out from the ugly Tuna Saluna with officers, sometimes accompanied by police dogs, looking closely in the street, inspecting dumpsters and other waste containers, and asking residents if they had seen Schaefer. Flyers bearing his picture, showing a tattoo on his upper right arm of a stick figure logo from the cover artwork of the single Alive by Pearl Jam, one of his favorite bands. Good taste, one of my favorite bands too, me and this guy have something in common. Although I hope I don't go disappearing out of a bar in the middle of the night. It, Let's just leave it at the love of Pearl Jam. It also noted a distinctive fleck in one of his irises. And these posters were out everywhere. They were posted widely across the city. Police even persuaded the city of Columbus to let them into the sewer system to search there. 
However, no useful information was uncovered. At Schaefer's apartment on King Avenue, six blocks from the bar, his car was still parked outside. And inside, nothing appeared to be missing. After searching miles away from the ugly tuna saluna, I'm gonna say that every chance I get, in every direction, police began to consider other possibilities beside an accident or foul play. Since Schaefer's mother had recently died, it was speculated he had gone away temporarily to grieve in solitude. Yet his disappearance proved permanent. There was no evidence of him actually leaving voluntarily. Those who had seen Schaefer that evening, including his father, were asked to take a lie detector test. He and Reed passed theirs, as did reportedly all the others, while Florence refused. The two women Brian had last seen talking to were later identified. They said that in 2009, they had never been asked to take one themselves. Wagner would attempt to call Schaefer's phone every night before going to bed for a very long time after the disappearance. Usually, it went to voicemail, but one night, in September, it actually rang three times. She said, quote, I kept calling it to hear purely because it was one of the best sounds I'd ever heard, even if no one ever picked up. She wrote that on her MySpace page. That's how old this case is, MySpace, yes. However, there was a bit of a damper on this, as Singular, which was Schaefer's wireless provider, said that Wagner heard what may have been a glitch in the system. A ping from the phone was detected at a cell tower in Hilliard, 14 miles northwest of Columbus. The police received many tips, none of which resulted in any breakthroughs in the case. At a Pearl Jam concert later that year in Cincinnati, lead singer Eddie Vedder took time between songs to ask for tips in Schaefer's disappearance, but none of them were useful either. Possible sightings popped up in Michigan, Texas, and even Sweden. They were all investigated, but nothing came of it. Now, Randy Schaefer, who had recently suffered the death of his wife, continued the search for his son on his own, which makes sense. He's your last living thing in this world. You're going to do everything you can to try to find him. Get some closure, if nothing else. Now, enter the demon of the investigation world, a psychic. Yes, Mr. Randy Schaefer consulted a psychic. And he was told that his son Brian's body was in a body of water near a bridge pier. He and Derek, Brian's younger brother, along with some other citizens who would become interested in the case, brought waiters and spent much of their free time along the shores of the Olatangi River, which flows through Columbus adjacent to the OSU campus. However, all these searches were in vain, as nothing ever popped up. This possibility also led the police to briefly consider the heavily disputed smiley face murder theory, which we're not going to get into today because that's a podcast all on its own. Schaefer, under this theory, would be the purported serial killer's only victim whose body had not yet been found. Columbus police eventually rejected any connection to the alleged killer in Schaefer's case, following the lead of the most law enforcement agencies, including the FBI, that have looked into it. There was some sad news in regards to the Schaefer family in September of 2008, as during a heavy windstorm, Randy Schaefer was out in the yard of his Baltimore home cleaning debris when a branch flew off a nearby tree and fatally struck him. It took till the next morning before neighbors found his body and called police. He sadly passed on that day. After his obituary ran online, a condolence book was posted. One of the signatures in it said, To Dad, Love Brian, U.S. Virgin Islands. This suggested Brian might have actually left Columbus for a new life elsewhere. However, upon further investigation, the note was found to have been posted from a computer accessible to the public in Franklin County. It was determined to be a hoax, which just goes to show the depravity of people online. Fucking people are stupid. God, that's terrible. 
There were some developments in the case, but not very many useful ones. Shortly after Randy Schaefer's death, Neil Rosenberg, attorney for Florence, wrote to Don Corbett, a private investigator who has volunteered his time to help the Schaefer family find Brian, regarding his client's ongoing refusal to take a lie detector test. Rosenberg intimated that he had learned that Columbus police investigating the case believed Schaefer was alive. In April 2009, the Lantern, OSU's student newspaper, disclosed the exchange. Quote, if Brian is alive, which is what I'm led to believe after speaking with the detectives involved, then it is Brian, not Clint, Florence, who is causing his family pain and hardship, Rosenberg wrote. Brian should come forward and end this. Florence, he said, did not have anything to hide. He had merely told everything he knew from beginning and did not see the value of doing so again under a polygraph which is both suspicious and kind of logical because polygraphs aren't really used in court. They can't be admitted as evidence because they can be easily tricked. They can give false positives very easily, so on and so forth. But if you have nothing to hide, why not just go through it again? Both sides seem pointless. I don't know. It's just strange that your friend wouldn't want to take this for you. Eh. But, you know, to each their own. Rosenberg's assertions, notwithstanding, many of those who were close to Brian Schaefer criticized Florence for not being forthcoming enough, saying, quote, as soon as the detective started getting involved, that's when pretty much he had no contact with anybody. I've always thought he definitely knows something, just won't come forward with it. He believes it's still possible that Schaefer is alive and Florence knows where he might have gone, saying, quote, if Brian did take off somewhere, if that is the case, we just always had a strong feeling that Clint would possibly know where that is. Wagoner also thinks that Florence is withholding information, but she believes that it's likely her former boyfriend is dead and did not run off, saying, quote, I can't imagine he would have just done that. In 2014, Columbus police said that they were still receiving at least two tips a month on the case via local Crime Stoppers, though nothing has been proven useful. Evidence in the case filled four boxes of files. One of the original investigators, Andrew Edwards, told Columbus Monthly that after extensive review of the camera footage at the Ugly Tuna Saloon, I'm going to say it again all day, from the night Shaper disappeared, which was intended to rule out the idea he could have left in disguise, he could, quote, say with 100% certainty that Shaper did not leave via the escalator. Police say that there have three theories about the case, but declined to discuss any of them with the magazine. In 2019, an alleged picture of a homeless man in Tijuana, Mexico started circulating. This man believed to be an American resembled at least a little bit Schaefer. A Columbus news station, 10TV, forwarded the image to detectives in charge of Schaefer's case in 2020. The detectives sent the image to the FBI for facial recognition analysis, which ruled him out as the man in the picture. It was not Schaefer. In 2021, very recently, the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation released an age-progressed photo of what Schaefer might look like at 42, nearly 15 years after his disappearance. Now, in cases like this, ones that garner a lot of media attention, Brian's disappearance and possibly his own death, Randy joined the families of other missing adults in Ohio lobbying the state legislature to pass a bill establishing a statewide protocol for such cases. At the time of Schaefer's disappearance, it was left up to individual departments how to handle the case, and some parents felt that investigations into their relatives' disappearances had suffered as a result. And by the time Randy died, the bill had become law. So what do you think happened here? 
I know none of us are professional investigators, at least I'm not anymore. Once upon a time, I had a license. However, that license has since expired, and I consider myself no longer an investigator. Except for podcasts, which is fine. It is fishy that Florence, or Clint, whatever you want to call him, did not want to take that lie detector test. And I believe he knows something. I don't think he killed his friend Brian Schaefer, but I think he knows what happened to him. And I think it was Brian that left on his own. And I think Florence helped him with his escape. I don't know how he did it, but I think he had a role to play in it. Maybe the whole thing about being a doctor got to him. Maybe he realized that his relationship with Wagner was getting very serious and he wanted a way out. But maybe he wanted the coward's way out and he didn't want to tell anybody what he was going to do. Maybe he didn't want to tell anybody that he didn't love them anymore or that he wasted the last six years of his life at medical school and getting a degree in microbiology. Maybe he didn't want to disappoint anybody. And maybe the only person that understood was his good friend Clint Florence. So they hatched a plan to get him out of there. It makes sense. In my brain, anyway. He didn't do anything illegal, so it's not like the lie detector test could prove him to be guilty of anything. The only thing the lie detector test would be able to tell was that he knew something. That he knew where his good friend was hiding out, or at least where he went after that night at the bar. And I think he's just keeping that secret to himself, and he'll probably keep it until he dies. Or until maybe Brian reappears somewhere. It's hard to say. Obviously, this guy's a smart guy, this Brian Schaefer guy. So it wouldn't surprise me if he decided to just up and leave and maybe fake his own death. Although, there would be remains or something to be found at this point. And, you know, he was a doctor or going to be a doctor. So he might have had even access to remains, cadavers or something to potentially even fake his own death legitimately. Nevertheless, that's going to do it for us this week. My throat is killing me. I've been reading scripts all day for other projects and I am raw. You probably can hear it. It's a little bit raspy, a little bit higher than usual. And starting to get weaker. Anyway, as always, you can leave a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, but now you can do that on Spotify, which I prefer because I don't check iTunes. Nobody checks iTunes. Who the hell has iTunes nowadays? Everybody has Spotify, so leave that five-star rating on Spotify. I won't be able to know who did it, but if you want to email me or send me a message on social media saying that you did that. Speaking of which, I want to thank Heart for leaving that five-star review as well as Cassandra who told me that they also left a five-star review. Those are the only two so far that I'm aware of that did it. But if you did, be sure to send me a message on Instagram at ominousoriginspod. I've also been uploading a lot more on there lately. Some uh, little videos from a little series you might remember called A History of Demons. Also, you can find me on Twitter and send me a message there if you'd like. At HorrorShotsProd, as in production. Facebook is still a thing as well, and you can find me on there at HorrorShots. So until next time.